Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 5 and 6. Now we're going to follow mostly John, so stay with us as we do John 5 and 6, and we'll tell you when we're jumping to Matthew or jumping to Mark. We're going to start off by talking about the miracle at the pools of Bethesda, as discussed in John 5. And then we're going to talk about the death of John the Baptist. That's going to be covered in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And with that, there's going to be some details surrounding John's death. After that, we'll briefly discuss the return of the 12 apostles from their mission. And then we're going to go into the account of the feeding of the 5,000. That account is actually in all four Gospels. And so that's significant. After we talk about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we will discuss the miracle of Jesus walking on water as portrayed in Matthew, Mark, and John's account. After Jesus walks on water, he heals the people of Gennesaret, we'll look at that, but then really the bulk of the rest of the podcast will be focused on John 6, being the bread of life. We'll talk about what that means, their reaction, and his challenge to his followers that remain with him. And so that's the big picture of where we're going to go in this podcast. And so with that, let's go to John chapter 5 and begin with the miracle at the pools of Bethesda. So there was a pool near Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethesda. And in verse 4, it says there was kind of a common belief that an angel went down and kind of stirred up the water. And they thought that the first person in after the stirring up or the troubling of the water was going to be healed. And so verse 3, it says, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. So here's the setting. There's a lot of people who are sick, and they're hurting, and they're in pain, and they see this as an opportunity to be healed. Well, there was a man there who had suffered for 38 years with a debilitating, crippling, physical problem. Now, I love verse 6, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. What drove Jesus to the pool of Bethesda? He knew a man was suffering. He knew someone was in pain, and he went there to heal him. Now, look at the very next question. This is one you're rarely going to find in the New Testament. Normally, Jesus asked if they had enough faith to be healed. But this time, he doesn't ask if the man has enough faith. He doesn't test the man's faith in any way. He simply says, wilt thou be made whole? He felt a great compassion for this man, and he wanted to heal him. Wilt thou be made whole? Now listen to what the man says. In verse 7, the impotent man answered, saying, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, and while I'm coming, someone else steps down in front of me. That phrase, I have no man, is being answered by the Savior's presence that day. Do you hear what he's trying to say? When you have no one else, he will be there. He will make sure that you have someone. 
because you will always have him. He is always aware of the pain that you're in. And I hear him saying, wilt thou be made whole? Can I help you? Can I bless you? Now, he balances all of that with knowing what we need. I understand that. But just see his character in this beautiful story. He knew he was suffering, and he went there to heal him. Right, so it reminds me in Exodus 3 when the Lord's speaking to Moses, and he says, I have seen their trial. I know their suffering. I have heard their cries. So he is, he is aware of us. Now, this place is probably a site in St. Anne's Monastery in Jerusalem, just northeast of the Temple Mount. There were pools there that were about 20 feet deep, and the site had a couple of pools surrounded by four porches with a fifth one right down the middle separating them. And we think that it probably separated the genders so that the men were on one side and the women were on the other side. John writes this probably after 70 AD, but his recollection of the site's pretty accurate. And so uh, there's a strong consensus that this place in Jerusalem was probably a healing shrine, perhaps dedicated to the Greek cult of Asclepius, which was this god of healing. And this man may have been one of those individuals that was a Jew, and he believed in God, but he was probably trying whatever he could to be healed. And this is Bruce McConkie. This is what he says about this event. He says, No doubt these waters had, as hot mineral springs do in our day, some curative and healing powers, which gave rise to a legend among the superstitious and spiritually illiterate Jews that an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. That's Bruce McConkie's take on this. Now, I like that this man is coming to this space in his vulnerability, in his weakness, and maybe it is a pagan site, but he's looking to be healed. I guess the reason why I like this is because this is portraying Jesus meeting him where he is. It really does portray Jesus coming to one of the sanctuaries of his day that people acknowledged, and then healing him in bringing him to a higher state where he can see differently. Get the healing that you can that's available, but I can offer a healing that's up and beyond that. Yes, I really like that. Now, there's a couple ways to read this passage, because the man is made whole, and this is one way that I read the text, and this doesn't mean I'm right, but as I read this, I see this as a type for things associated with the temple, for a description of God's ability to reach out to those that are dead and redeem the dead, and perhaps even as a type for baptism for the dead. So here's just a couple things to consider. First, look in John 5.3. We read that these people are impotent folk. They can't do something for themselves. We read it again in 5.7 that he was an impotent man. We read in John 5, 5 that he had this infirmity for 38 years. Now, this could harken back to Deuteronomy 2, verse 14, where it does talk about the children of Israel being in this wandering state for 38 years. I know often we say 40, but at least in Deuteronomy 2, verse 14, it invokes this image of 38 years, that this man could perhaps represent Israel in a state where they're kind of in between. They're not in Egypt but they're not in the promised land. He's stuck. He's impotent. And then we have in verse 7 where he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. And then if you go to verse 21, we shift a little bit, and Jesus is talking about the Father raising up the dead. 
And then in verse 25, we have the Savior saying that the dead will hear his voice. And then verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So kind of the way I look at this, if we take this as a matrix of ideas, you know, by itself, one of these probably doesn't do it. But when we put it together in a collective matrix and we see this individual that can't do something for himself, he's waiting to be put into the pool. And then Jesus comes and redeems him, makes him whole. He's made complete. And then Jesus speaks about the dead hearing the gospel. I would just suggest that this could perhaps be a type that God will fix broken things, but better yet, he will fix the most broken thing. Yes. He will fix dead bodies. Yes. And he will get them into the pool. Maybe that's what John saw that, it, that caused him to say, wait a minute, we missed something. This was more than a story about Jesus healing a man at the pool of Bethesda. This is bigger and broader and deeper. And I think that John saw symbolism here. When I have no one, when I can't get into the pool, Jesus can fix even death and save and redeem even the dead. I really like that. Before we leave John 5, I want to just briefly discuss John 5, verse 29. Jesus says, And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, that word that's used for damnation is a word that means judgment, chryseos. It comes from chrysin, which is distinction or chrysis. It is this word which literally means judgment or to make a distinction. And this distinction, in my opinion, is exactly what's going on in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 76, Joseph Smith is reading John 5. He's doing a Joseph Smith translation. He comes to verse 29, and the heavens are opened, and he sees the distinctions in the heavens, that in the celestial glory, he sees those that attain up into the church of the firstborn, the exalted ones. And then he sees gradations or distinctions of individuals that inherit terrestrial and telestial glory. So I just wanted to draw that out, that this verse, verse 29, does invite that interpretation. And there's one thing I want to add to John chapter 5. So this man is healed, and they take issue with him holding his little bed on the Sabbath. He points out that Jesus told him to carry it. And now they kind of take on Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day. Now the rest of John chapter 5 is a little bit of a contention between the Savior and the Pharisees. And he's going to talk about his role as being the Son and throw some wonderful little gems in that are worth a moment to pay attention to. For example, he says in verse 22, "...the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son." He points out in 23, he that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Do you see the relationship between these two? He talks about preaching to the dead. He points out in verse 27, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. All of those are wonderful topics of discussion if you want to tackle them. The one I want to highlight is in verse 26. Jesus declares in verse 26, As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The Savior will pick that up in John chapter 10 where he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. 
No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And then he declares, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This man that we worship as our Savior had life within him. He is the only person that we know that could resurrect himself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. It's no wonder why when he speaks to Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I desire everyone to understand how unique this man Jesus really was and who we worship. He had life within himself. Now he's willing to extend that power and that life to fix everything in our lives that are broken. Yes. So with that, we're going to leave John chapter 5, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 14, and this accounts also in Mark 6. We read that on Herod's birthday, John the Baptist is being executed. And often people ask, you know, why is this happening? We get a clue for this in verse 3 of chapter 14. It said that Herod laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now, Herod's brother, Philip, is also Herod II. And if you remember, the Herod here in the 14th chapter is the son of Herod the Great. And so Herod is having an affair with his sister-in-law, and he eventually takes her as wife, and she was married... And it was widely known that she was Herod Philip's wife or Herod II's wife. And she leaves her husband, Philip, to go marry her husband's brother, which ironically is also her uncle. Not to be too cringy, but she is Herod Antipas's niece. And she's also the daughter of his brother. So there's a lot going on here. Now, the brother of Herod in this chapter, Herod the Tetrarch, his brother is Aristobulus IV, and he's one of the brothers that's drowned by Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great drowns his brother, he makes sure that the daughter of Aristobulus is married to Philip. Well, why does she leave Philip? We really don't know, but here's my take. Later in his life, Herod the Great basically took away Philip's kingdom and said, I'm not going to give you a kingdom. Now, Philip should be lucky that he wasn't executed. But what happened was when Herod the Great found out about a plot to kill him, and he heard that Herod Philip didn't do anything to defend him, he stripped him of his royal title and made him a private citizen, basically denying him a kingdom. And so my take as I kind of read history, as I look at this and I see Herodias, and she says, well, I'm going to leave this individual, and I'm going to go be with Herod, because at least Herod Antipas has a kingdom. Now, if that's true, it kind of lends credence to the type of woman she is, because we read that when John is calling them out, Herod Antipas and Herodias being together, that she says, hey, we've got to get him in prison. So they put him in prison, and then it seems to me the way I read this bit here in Matthew 14, that Herodias is kind of the one that's getting Herod killed. So if you go to verse 6 of chapter 14, this is what it reads. When Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, 
said, give me here John the Baptist's head and a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and for them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. So it kind of reads this way, right? That Herod, in a moment of weakness, offered this daughter of Herodias whatever she wanted, and she'd been instructed by her mother to make sure that John was killed. And so this story really does kind of denigrate or throw shade at Herod and Herodias. And Bryce, it kind of reminds me of the story where King Noah doesn't want to kill Abinadi, and he's kind of in this state of, I'm going to let him go, and then pride kicks in, and then he has Abinadi killed. It's a, it's a really hard story and very tragic. But lest you be concerned, I want to remind you that when John the Baptist came to Joseph Smith to restore the Aaronic priesthood, fully restored, his head was put back on his shoulders, all his pain was gone. Sometimes we get caught up in the pain of someone's death and the stories behind their death, but we need to understand that they're being received into glory. John the Baptist is resurrected, and he will appear to Joseph Smith whole and complete and happy, smile on his face and restored whole. He was healed. I love that John appears to Joseph Smith in glory and reminds us all that no matter how painful the death, the glorious resurrection that is going to come. It had to have been so hard on the Savior. We read in the 12th verse that John's disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. And then his response when he heard it, he went by ship into a desert place apart. I'm assuming here that Jesus probably had to wrestle with this. It was probably so difficult to see. Here he is trying to preach the good news of the kingdom, and yet the kingdoms of this world are killing prophets. And if you think about the world that we live in today, maybe they're not killing prophets per se, but we certainly live in cancel culture where prophets are denigrated and all kinds of immorality is flaunted as normal. And somehow, as Latter-day Saints, we have to live in this world, and we have to find a way to believe in Jesus and to preach Jesus and to have him in our countenance, but we're not necessarily going to have the power to change the kingdoms of this world. Bones still break, hearts still break, but Jesus is king. And so in the midst of this, the apostles of Jesus return from their mission. And we don't really necessarily read it in Matthew 14, but we do read it in Mark 6, verses 30 through 33, and Luke 9, verse 10 and 11. I'm just going to read this one verse in Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. This is the returning of the apostles. They're coming back from their missionary activity. And they told them all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And if you think about it, sometimes when you're in the service of the Lord, you're exhausted. And I'm assuming that they probably would come back really, really tired. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done. Now, I'm assuming that probably could have a whole bunch of stories. The 12 went out two by two and did these things and preached in the name of Jesus and healed. I'm assuming they would have some great stories. But then we read in Luke that they went into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve, and they said to Jesus, 
Send the multitude away that they may go out into the towns and the country round about and lodge and get food. It says victuals in the King James, but we're talking about food. For we are here in a desert place. And he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We don't have a lot of food. And they only have five loaves and two fishes. Now, I've asked myself a thousand times, why is this story so prominent in the New Testament? Why do all four Gospels teach it? And I love the sequence of events that John presents, that first he feeds the 5,000, and then he walks on the water. And I think what John is trying to do is help us understand that there is a balance between what Jesus has the power to do for us and what he asks us to do for ourselves. I know that's a struggle. I love this song by Michael McLean that talks about which part is mine and which part is his. And sometimes the mistake I make is I don't do my part. God will always do his part. But sometimes I don't know which part is mine. Is this one of those where it's all Jesus and he's just going to take over and do it? Or is this one of those where it's all me and he's waiting and we're waiting on the beach for four years for me to build a barge before we cross the ocean? There's moments throughout the scriptures and there's moments in my life where I get it wrong and I don't do the part that's mine. And so I love that John puts two stories side by side to help us understand that sometimes Jesus takes the barley loaf of my life and he magnifies it, and he feeds thousands of people. But then he asks me to row as much as I possibly can. And it's only when I'm out of strength that he walks on the water to come and save me. So watch for that balance. Now, we're going to jump into each story and talk about the beauty of each story. And I want to use John's version. I would encourage you to go back and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And then turn to John and ask yourself, what did John see that would cause him to retell this story? Because all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do a wonderful job of teaching the story. But John points out the lad had five barley loaves and two small fishes. I think those two words added by John change the story. So going back a little bit in John's account... Jesus asked Philip, "'Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat?' Philip says, "'Lord, 200 penny worth of bread.'" Now, remember, in Matthew chapter 5, the servants would work all day and get paid a penny. So this is basically 200 days of a working man's wage. 200 penny worth would not provide enough bread to give everyone a little. Look at the last word of verse 7. If we had all the bread that we could afford, it wouldn't be enough to give everyone a little. Remember that word. The world's version of solving the problem would provide a little. But what Jesus has is a little. He has five barley loaves and two small fishes. Now put yourself in this story because I think we are the barley loaves and we are the fishes. And I say to the Lord, I'm willing to serve. I'd like to go on a mission or I'd like to hold this calling, but Lord, I don't know what I offer. I don't know what I can do in this kingdom. I'm just a barley loaf. The cheapest 
bread you could possibly afford. It was known as poor man's bread. And so he takes the barley loaves and the small fishes and he blesses it. Jesus takes it into his hands. Verse 11, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he asked them to distribute. Now, end of verse 11, he told them, everyone can take as much as they want. There is no holding back. Take as much as you want. Now, look at verse 12. When they were filled, I want to point out that Philip says 200 penny worth of bread wouldn't give everyone enough to say that they had a little. And Jesus takes five barley loaves and two small fishes and fills them. Now, do you see the message here? If you offer whatever you have to the Lord, your very best, even though it falls short, in his hands, it is enough to fill the multitude. And then he says, gather up what's left over. He not only gave them a little, he gave them more than they could eat. And they gathered up 12 baskets. Well, the original five loaves and two small fishes would not have even fit in 12 baskets. And the leftovers, after they were all filled, fit in 12 baskets. Now, do you see who he is? On one side of the equation, this is what Jesus can do. This is what he can do with me. This is what he can do with a book. This is what he can do with a temple. If I simply look at the temple as a barley loaf, and I'm not getting much out of the temple, then allow Jesus to lay his hands upon it, and he can then fill me. If we allow the Savior to be part of our temple worship, part of our scripture study, if I give myself to Jesus and allow him to take my very best and multiply it, it's then that I can meet the need and people will be filled. You may want to have a discussion with your class or with your family about all of the different barley loaves that Jesus can multiply. You know, Bryce, it reminds me of the water to wine, ordinary water made into something extraordinary. Do you see what John is trying to portray? That Jesus can turn water into wine. He can turn barley loaves into a feast, and you can't even eat all that he offers. Now, the result of this miracle is that they want to crown him as king. In verse 14, after he multiplies the bread and feeds them miraculously, they say amongst themselves, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They saw him as the fulfillment of the Messiah they wanted. I can quit my job. I don't need to worry because Jesus is going to solve all of my problems. And then in verse 15, because they see him as the fulfillment, now they get to that idea that Israel is without a king. We have been without a king for hundreds of years. And now that we have this man, the Messiah that they wanted has come. Look what they want to do in verse 15. They want to crown him as king. Now, this is a very significant moment. Yes. So it says they want to take him by force and make him a king. And his response is, I'm out. 
we read in John 6, 15, he departed into a mountain himself alone, and his disciples are going to go into the sea and cross over. I want to talk a little bit about this experience that's in all four Gospels of him feeding the people miraculously. This really does fit with the ancient Near Eastern motif of the king feeding people in a covenantal setting. Anciently, kings They would feed their people. They did them in all kinds of different settings. Probably the easiest one for us to look at is just the experience at the dedication of the first temple. When Solomon dedicated it, he fed people. We read in 1 Kings 8 that he held a great feast to dedicate the temple, and the feast lasted for seven days, and it included a large sacrifice and offerings to the Lord. And in addition to the religious aspects of this feast, Solomon provided food and drink for everyone during the celebration, and it kind of represented his wealth and his generosity, but this was also a type of the future king that would come. You see, at least in the early temple, they would have a drama portrayed over about eight days during the fall festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in concluding it, there was a day when there would be a great feast and the king would supply the food. He would supply the nation with all the animals for the sacrifices and all the food of the feast. And everyone would eat it together. And it really emphasized this covenant unity between the people and between God and between the king and the queen. You see, the king and the queen represented God to the people, but the king and the queen also represented the people to God. And they were kind of like this nexus of covenantal power. And so the king supplying all the food kind of symbolized this return to the garden, the Garden of Eden, where we had free access to the fruit of the tree of life, and the food was miraculously provided by God. And so this was a great day of feasting, a great day also of thanksgiving for the harvest that had been brought in as a blessing from a bounteous God. Interestingly enough, Mormon, when he's writing down the experience that Jesus has with the Nephites in Third Nephi chapter 20, There's two feasts, and there's two feedings, essentially. In the first feast, they provide the bread. The people provide it. The disciples go and get it. But in 3 Nephi 20, verses 3 through 7, this is what we read. It came to pass that he, meaning Jesus, brake bread and blessed it, and he gave the disciples to eat. And when they had eaten, he commanded them that they should break bread and give to the multitude. And when they had given to the multitude, he gave them wine to drink and commanded that they should give to the multitude. Now, this is interesting that Mormon writes this, there had been no bread, neither wine brought by the disciples, neither by the multitude, but he, meaning Jesus, truly gave unto them bread to eat and also wine to drink. This really does fit with the ancient Near Eastern motif of the king during a certain time of the year feeding people in a covenantal setting. And so I see the people sitting here, and I I kind of, the way I kind of read this is I think most of these 5,000 are covenantal Jews. These are people that see something about Jesus, and I think they're making the connection. I think they're saying, oh, I see what he's doing. This is more than just a feeding. And they get that there's a miracle, but I think they see it in its context of, oh, this is what the kings did. This is what King Solomon did. Now, there were other kings that did this anciently. Augustus and Trajan held public feasts where they did this kind of thing. This happened in China. It also happened in Persia. Rulers like Xerxes and Darius were known to hold grand feasts to provide for their subjects. And I think Bryce is dead on when he says, they're not just eating, they're getting 
fulfilled, verse 12. And so I think in the context of all this, they see who he is, and I think it's great that they acknowledge him as a king because he was. I think the issue that John's drawing is verse 15 where it says they want to take him by force. And I think sometimes we can apply it in in other ways. We can kind of look at this and say, do I try to force my will on the Lord? Do I try to say to the Lord, okay, I'll believe you if you need to do it my way. And I love the modern day brethren, especially Elder Christofferson, where he says, the Lord is not a vending machine. Like it doesn't work that way. We need to be able to submit our will to his. But I think it's great that they acknowledge him as a king because he was. So once they recognize that he is fulfilling the prophecies and matching the description of a king that will feed his people, they pushed it too far. They start pushing it all on him. You're going to be our king. I think they were hoping to march on Rome, reestablish the temple, and have a king again in Israel. And that's not what Jesus intended to do. He is a king, but he came to do something else. But they want to push him towards the kind of king they wanted not necessarily the kind of king he came to be. And so notice what he does next. It is so significant to me of what happens next. So on one side, we have him feeding the 5,000 miraculously in such a way that they are completely filled. Now watch what he does. He gets his disciples into a boat, and he sends them across the sea, but he doesn't go with them. He stays. Now, verse 16 of John 6 says, when even was come. Now, the way the Jews measured the night was to divide it into four watches. So the first watch would go from around dusk or 6 p.m. to approximately 9 p.m. The second watch would go from 9 p.m. to about midnight. The third watch would go from midnight to 3 a.m., and the final watch, known as the fourth watch, would go from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and those are the four watches. So he put them in the boat at even time. So around 6 p.m., they get in the boat. Now go to verse 19 of John 6. At some point in the night, they have rowed 25 or 30 furlongs. Now, you may want to jot this down in your scriptures, that a furlong is approximately 220 yards. So if they have gone 30 furlongs, it is 3.75 miles. The width of the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles. So they are approximately, depending on where they start and where they're going to come out, but they are approximately in the middle of the sea. And they have been rowing all night. They have gone only 3.75 miles. Now we turn to Matthew's account. In chapter 14, he once again points out that it was even time and they got on the boat. Now, why is it? that they have only rowed halfway after nine hours of rowing. And the reason is because in verse 24, the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. They are rowing against a very strong wind that is most likely blowing water into the boat. They are panicking, trying to stay out of the water. 
I don't know if you've ever been on a boat in the middle of a storm, but it is terrifying. They have been rowing for nine hours. They are exhausted. Mentally, spiritually, physically, they are spent. Now, there is one verse in Mark that we need to throw in. There's a beautiful addition in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 6. He mentions in verse 48 that he saw them toiling in rowing. I think that's so significant. So Jesus has been watching this whole time. He's watching them row in a storm-tossed sea, and it's been nine hours. So why is he waiting? Why does he wait till the fourth watch to save them? And may I suggest, here's the balance, that while Jesus can do miraculous things for us, like feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, while he can do miraculous, wonderful things for us, he asks us to do all that we can do. I would suggest to you that he didn't come an hour earlier because he knew they still had strength to row. He didn't come an hour later because he knew they would not have had the strength to row. That our Savior knows exactly that moment where I have spent all that I have, and now he comes in and steps in and takes the rest. He chose that moment. Let me give you a couple scriptural examples. The widow of Zarephath. Remember what she was doing when Elijah showed up? She was gathering sticks to prepare her final meal. She went as far as she could. That was the day Elijah showed up and took over and fed them for many days because of her faith. Another example, in 3 Nephi chapter 1, do you remember when the believers are going to be put to death if the sign isn't given? Now, Nephi is out praying for those, quote, who are about to be destroyed. If we read that carefully, I suspect that Nephi was out that night because the next day they were going to be destroyed. So when was the sign given and they were saved from that death sentence? Perhaps the night before. Jesus let them go as far as they could and then came and saved them right at the last moment. One more, Joseph Smith says, when was he about to give up? When Satan comes and attacks him, at the moment of greatest alarm, that's when the light came. And I think one of the things Jesus is teaching in this story is that he asks you to row as long as you can. Sometimes I think we push back and say, Lord, I don't have strength. I wouldn't be surprised if the disciples thought they couldn't go past the third watch. But Jesus knows in his infinite knowledge, he knows exactly how far I can go. Now put those two stories together. Do you see the balance between them? On the one side, we see Jesus doing miraculous things. He took five loaves of barley bread and he fed a multitude. That's one side of what Jesus can do. He can heal our broken bones. He can heal our broken bodies. He can heal our broken hearts. That's who he is. But we have to balance that with this Savior who says, get in a boat and row. 
You know, Bryce, you just mentioned Joseph Smith. I just want to read this one little bit that I think is significant. He says, at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, and then he goes on speaking about the time of greatest alarm, but then he says, I saw a pillar of light. It's at that moment when he came. And he knows that moment. Now, sometimes we think we've hit that moment, and we haven't, and we cry out to the Lord, carest thou not that we perish. But to any of you who are rowing, and you're exhausted, and you're wondering, where is the Savior? Where is the feeding of the 5,000 for me? Where are the miracles? Perhaps you're in that moment of your life where he is saying, you still have strength to row, and I am asking you to row a little bit further. Therefore, like Elder Holland said of Jesus in Gethsemane, if the bitter cup doesn't pass, then drink it and hold on and have hope for better days. Maybe today is a rowing day. Maybe today is the day I just need to do all that I can to keep going and trust it that when I've hit that moment, when I've gone as far as I can, When I'm about to sink into despair, that's the moment he will come to me and say the wonderful words that we're about to get into, where he says, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's Mark 6, verse 50. Now, let me add two more scriptures before we talk about Peter walking on the water, which is a whole nother wonderful story. But let me point out two verses. When Jesus finally gets in the boat, two things happen that are significant. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 32, as soon as he comes into the ship, the wind ceased. As soon as he gets into the boat, there's no more storm beating against you. Now, John chapter 6, verse 21 has the second one. As soon as they willingly receive him into the ship, immediately the ship was at the land where they went. Remember where they were when he came? They were in the middle of the sea. But as soon as they receive him into the ship, they're at their destination, which means no more rowing. And so I would conclude one message of hope to anyone who is rowing, who is on the sea in the middle of a storm and the world is beating against you, and you are wondering, when is it going to happen? There is value in the strength that will come in these last few moments, so keep rowing. I witness to you, someday the beating against you will come to an end, and you will no longer have to row because you will be at your destination. But if today is a rowing day, then you row as long as you have strength, trusting that we do worship a God that can turn five loaves of bread into a feast. Beautiful. One of the interpretations of Jesus and the walking on the water is the destruction of the chaos dragon. And the chaos dragon's all over the place. And if you listen to some of the stuff we do with the Old Testament, it's in there. But just to be brief, go to Psalm 74. This idea of the chaos dragon representing the sea. One of the names of the chaos dragon was Yam, which is the Hebrew word for the sea. In Psalm 74, we read this. 
For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. That's Psalm 74, verse 12. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood and dried up mighty rivers. For the day is thine and night is also thine. There's so many passages in the Psalms about how the Lord has destroyed the chaos. He has conquered it. Psalm 77, verse 16, the waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths were also troubled. The clouds poured out like water. The skies sent out a sound. Thine arrows went abroad and the voice of thunder was in heaven and the lightnings lightened the world, and the earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I really think in the reading of John 6, what we see is Jesus has conquered the chaos, and yet everything Bryce says is true. They still had to go and row. That's kind of where we get that word like compassion. That word compassion means, you know, I'm suffering with you. And Jesus is a God who weeps. He's a God who suffers. He's going to suffer on the cross. And he sees his disciples suffering, and he lets them. I think this is a message for us. These are his closest associates. And if he's okay with letting them suffer, are we any different? And yet he's there. And so can the chaos of our lives be conquered while we're still in the midst of the chaos? And I would submit that that is one possible interpretation of this story. But there's a lot of interpretations. Um, one of the interpretations of Jesus and the walking on the water is this idea of his divinity. You see, in this interpretation, his ability to walk in the water is seen kind of as a demonstration of his power and control over the natural world. And we kind of see this in Mark 6, verse 50, be comforted, it is I, be not afraid. That phrase, it is I, is actually ego and me, which is I am. And I think Jesus is invoking the divine name there, just saying who he is as a divine individual. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament. I also see this whole story as has been discussed as a test of faith. You see, in this interpretation, Jesus walking on the water can be seen as a test of faith for his disciples on many levels. One of them we're going to talk about in a minute, where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then I challenge you to invite me to walk on the water. And there's some faith testing going on we're going to talk about here in a minute. Another way to look at this is this is a story of spiritual growth. This story can be seen as like a metaphor for the spiritual journey of the disciples in their process of growing closer to God. They're struggling, but in their struggle, it's in the struggle that we come to Christ. This story is also a symbol of comfort and hope because once again, he conquers the chaos. So these are just a couple interpretations here. So with this, we're going to go to the account in Matthew where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, invite me to walk on the water. So in the middle of this rowing story is this beautiful little lesson about Peter and the storm and trusting Jesus and faith. There's so many things wrapped up into this story. 
Now Peter says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Can I come and be with thee? Can I come out of this boat and walk with thee on the water? And Jesus always says the same thing. Come, get out of the boat. Now here is the lesson about coming to Christ onto the water. Peter had had enough experiences to trust Jesus. I am confident that Peter, with full confidence, jumped out of that boat and knew that he would hit solid ground. And I think all of us at some point kind of have relied on our confidence in Christ. We make that leap, trusting God, trusting the experiences that we've had. We jump out of the boat and we land on solid water. Now, here's where the lesson comes. Verse 30 of Matthew 14 But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Now, there's the problem. The problem is after that act of faith, after we jump out of the boat, there's always going to be the storm. It's always going to come. Now, the question is when the storm hits, Does it cause you to take your eyes off the Savior and to be afraid and to sink? The act of faith is holding on to the confidence that we once had, even though the storm is hitting. One of my favorite definitions of faith came from C.S. Lewis when I was at a point in my life where this really had a major impact. He says the following, I used to assume that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason. That is not so. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that doesn't alter the fact that when they have me down on that table and they clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I'm afraid they'll start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that has taken away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination, my emotions, and I would add my fears. There's the storm. Now, C.S. Lewis continues. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. Now, this is Bryce interjecting, not C.S. Lewis. I think that's important. God is not asking me to believe in something that doesn't make sense. That is not a leap of faith. Just believe it even though it doesn't make sense. Here's the moment of faith. It's when I jump forward because it makes sense to me and then the storm hits. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is bad news, or he's in trouble, or he's living among a lot of people who do not believe it. All at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out sort of a blitz on his beliefs. 
or else there will be a moment where he wants a woman or he wants to tell a lie or he feels very pleased with himself or sees a chance of making a little money in a way that's not perfectly honest. Some moment, in fact, in which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and his desires will carry out a blitz. I am talking about moments where fear rises up against our faith. Now, C.S. Lewis gives this definition. Faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods and fears. Faith is the art of holding on to the confidence you once had when you jumped out of the boat in spite of the storm. For example, imagine a young person in this church fully confident that there is an eternal companion out there for them, fully confident that the Lord has provided many options as an eternal companion, and they trust the Lord and they jump out of the boat, and then they get older. Each year they get older, and then they get older, and pretty soon the storm starts to rage. Do you focus on the storm? Lose your faith, lose your confidence, and sink, and perhaps make poor decisions. Does fear cause you to make poor decisions? Or do you hold on? I love that definition of C.L. Lewis. Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is right in spite of your fears. When the storm hits, and it always will, Moroni will write in ether that you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. The storm will always hit. Now, do you hold on to the confidence you once had, or do you lose your faith because of your fears and sink? That's what Peter did. He saw the wind boisterous, and he was afraid, and he began to sink. Now, luckily, he cries out and says, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and caught him. He ran to him. He ran and caught him, pulled him out of the water, and said, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Why did you let your doubts cause you to sink? Hold on to the confidence that you once had. When Joseph Smith lost the 116 pages, the Lord made a fascinating statement to him. After losing the manuscript, the Lord says, Behold, you have been entrusted with these things, but how strict were your commandments. And remember also the promises which were made to you if you did not transgress them. And I would say to all of you who have jumped out of the boat as an act of faith, maybe you went on a mission as an act of faith and then the storm hit. I would say to you, remember also the promises. I really like this story, Bryce, because it shows Peter's humanity, but it also shows the grandeur of God. I mean, he walked on the water. It literally says that in there. Verse 29, I'm in Matthew 14. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Like he does that. And yet I totally relate with Peter. I totally get it. I know what it's like to live in a world where you feel the spirit, you see these evidences, and your faith is strong, 
and then the waves hit you. So I see this story as our story. So after this experience and the wind ceases, Matthew 14 relates this, that they were, that were in the ship came and they worshiped him. And they said, of a truth, thou art the son of God. And then it says that they went over and came into the land of Gennesaret. And that's going to be on the west side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And there's just a little bit here in Matthew 14, but it says, when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. And so Jesus does, he heals them. And then now we're going to go to John 6, and we're going to look at the sermon of the bread of life. This is where Jesus is going to talk to the individuals that want to make him king, and he's going to say, I am the bread of life. And so if you go to John 6, verse 22, so this is after the experience on the water, it says in verse 22, the day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save the one whereinto the disciples had entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that the disciples went away alone. In other words, they're wondering, like, how did Jesus get over there? We read that in verse 23. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh to the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, and they came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So... In the Matthew account, he's at Gennesaret. In the John account, he's at Capernaum. And so that kind of also agrees with the Mark account. In Mark 6, 53, we read that Jesus crossed over to Gennesaret and set at Capernaum. So the setting is a little bit different, but they're close. They're both there on the west side. But the main point is that they come to him, and they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, how did you get here? Or in the King James, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracle, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And the Joseph Smith adds, not because you desired to keep my sayings, neither because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So I think what's going on here is he, he sees their motives. And I think what he's saying is, you guys really aren't getting what my mission is. I'm not here to be your king in that political sense, but I do want to be your king, the king of your soul. I want to teach you how to be members or citizens of the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. And they said unto him, what shall we do that we might do the works of God. And this is a common theme in the Gospel of John. In John, one of his themes is we need to have this enduring trust in Jesus. And if we trust him, we're going to see greater things. And that word, that Greek word for trust, is generally going to be translated in the King James as believe. And so we read that in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. And then the irony, they ask for a sign. What sign will you show us? I find that ironic because yesterday he just fed them. And so then they say, our fathers ate manna in the desert. What's the sign? And then Jesus responds. 
he says this in verse 32. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And so their response, give us this bread. And he says in verse 35, you're looking at him. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He says it again in verse 48, where he says, I am that bread of life. Verse 47, he says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And what's ironic here is in the midst of this, they're murmuring. You kind of see this in a few places. You see it in verse 41, where it says, the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And then he repeats again, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Now, when I read verse 50, where it says, this is the bread, I believe Jesus took his hand and touched his chest to say, I am the bread of life. Because he says in verse 51, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then verse 53, except ye eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now for me, I read verse 53 and it's very personal for me because it tells me that I need to be there at the sacrament table. That's my personal application. And I look at that as a challenge from my savior where he basically says, Mike, where are you? And you need to check and see where you are in relationship to me. In verse 55, he says, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Now that's going to be really difficult. They're not going to understand it. And we read in verse 60 that many of his disciples, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying and who can hear it? And then one of the saddest verses of all of scripture, verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. It's a very, very challenging verse. In the midst of the miracle, in the midst of feeding these individuals that chased him down on the other side of the lake, and they talk to him, and they're not getting who he is. And he turns to the 12 and says, will you go away? And I love Peter's response. We read in verse 68 that Simon Peter answered and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. The way I read that is Peter is acknowledging this is hard. I don't fully understand what you're teaching, but there's nobody else that is feeding me with what you're feeding. There's no one else that can fill my soul. The experiences that I'm having, I can't explain it. I know it's real, but there's things that are hard. And I would say for me as a Latter-day Saint living in this time period that I'm living in, I relate with Peter. It can be hard sometimes. There might be something that will challenge your faith, maybe a historical issue, maybe a doctrinal issue, or maybe a social issue. And there are many times when the things that we hear don't meet what we expect, or it isn't what we want. And the question that Jesus is asking all of us is, will you also go away? 
And my response is always, well, where else am I going to go? That's one thing that I find interesting that when I read or when I hear critics who come to destroy faith, they never replace it with anything. There's no replacement. They're not there to feed you. They're just there to deconstruct faith. And it really is easy to demolish a building. It really is easy. It doesn't take long to demolish a marriage or a relationship. Cultivating one building a building, building a relationship, that takes time. It takes a lot of time and effort and basically mental and spiritual will to build these things, but not long to destroy. And so even though there's things that Jesus says that are difficult, or even today in his church, there are things that may have historical significance that are troubling, or a social issue, or a doctrinal issue that we don't quite understand. Maybe it's kind of like a Verse 55 situation, we read that and we say, well, what does that mean? My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. I don't understand. We could respond like Peter and say, well, where else are we going to go? So here's the question. What are you going to do if he's not the Messiah you wanted him to be? If you thought it was a feed the 5,000 day when he thinks it's a row on the sea day, What are you going to do if he doesn't answer your prayers the way you thought he should answer them? What are you going to do if you row further than you thought you'd ever have to row? The main point here of the Sermon on the Bread of Life is that I am not going to do what you wanted me to do. Remember how they wanted to crown him king? They wanted to re-enthrone a king in Israel, and Jesus is the one, and Rome's going to be destroyed, and we're going to be an independent nation again. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I didn't come to conquer Rome. I came to conquer sin and death. And that wasn't what they wanted him to conquer. And when they find out that he's not the Messiah they wanted him to be, that's when they use the H word. This is hard. The gospel can be hard to live if you expect healing when it doesn't come. That's when the disciples often walk no more with him, and they go back. And then comes that pertinent question, a question I think we all need to answer. Will you also go away? Will you go away when it gets hard? Because no one walked away when he was feeding the 5,000. No one ran away when there was a feast in front of them that was miraculously provided. That's not when we walk away. But that can't be our whole life. We'll never be the people we need to become if our life is all feeding of the 5,000. We need those soul-stretching moments on the sea where he doesn't come, and we row, and we keep rowing. So would you ponder this question this week? And will you also go? I just hope every one of us answers, Lord, where would I go? And so with that, I want to look at this story as Israel's new exodus. And I want to tip my hat to a man I look up to very much. His name is Tom Valletta. 
and he wrote a great article in the Enzyme called The True Bread of Life. And this is in the Enzyme 1999 in March. Tom had a great influence on me when I was looking at what I wanted to do with my life. And if anybody that knows you is listening, tell Tom this. I doubt Tom's listening to the podcast, but I will just say this. Tom, you have influenced my life so much. And and part of why I do what I do is because of the great experience I had in your classroom as a young man. And I remember going to Weber State University and taking Institute from Tom Valletta, and he opened the scriptures and opened my mind. And so in 1999 in the Enzyme, he talks about this idea that this story of Jesus walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 is another exodus. And it's an invitation to us to get on the road out of Egypt, echodos, the road out or the way out. We're leaving Egypt and we're going to the land of Canaan. And so there's some really interesting and provocative parallels here. You see, we have literally the providing of the bread, And now we have the Messiah walking on the water, which is hearkening our mind back to Exodus 15, the song of the sea, when Moses, as a king, as it were, he's acting in the role of a king, he has the divine staff, he's leading everyone through to the promised land. Moses leads them on dry ground through the watery chaos to a new place. The multitude was led by God through the wilderness and through the Red Sea. We read this in Exodus 12, but we also read it in John, that the multitude followed Jesus across the sea, John 6, 1 and 2. Moses went to the mountain of God in Exodus 3, verse 1, and so did Jesus in John 6, verse 3. Jehovah multiplied signs and wonders in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, and the people followed Jesus because of signs. We read that in John 6, 2, and 26, and 30, and Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. The Passover was instituted by the Lord in Exodus 12, and according to John 6, verse 4, the time was Passover. Israel was fed the bread from heaven called manna. The great company that followed Jesus was miraculously fed from five loaves and two fishes, just like the miraculous story of the manna. Manna was gathered according to the Lord's instructions in Exodus 16, and Jesus instructed his disciples to gather the fragments that nothing be lost. That's John 6, 12. Moses foretold of another prophet, a deliverer that would come. That's Deuteronomy 18. Jesus was called that prophet that should come into the world. That's what they called him. That's John 6, verse 14. The power of God saved Israel. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. That's in Exodus 14 and 15, those two chapters. And we read that Jesus walked on the sea to the ship, and he saved his disciples in John 6. Israel murmured against the Lord. We read that in Exodus 15, 24, Exodus 16, 8, and 17, 3. And the Jews murmured against the Lord Jesus in John 6, 43 and 61. Jehovah declared his name in Exodus 3.14 as I am, and Jesus declares in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Jehovah taught the meaning and significance of the Exodus experience. Jesus taught about the meaning and significance of him being the bread of life. And then finally, prophets testified about the meaning and significance of the Exodus experience all throughout, and Peter testified that Jesus has, quote, the words of eternal life. And so when you add all these ideas together, I really do see this as John is portraying Jesus as the fulfillment of these Old Testament types. And we're in this story because we are being invited 
to make a decision. Are we going to be like those in verse 66 that walk no more with him? Or are we going to go through the difficult things? And I would submit that it doesn't matter what time period you live in, everyone is going to have to decide, verse 67, will ye also go away? I just think that's part of the process. I want to end with one of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the book called The Silver Chair, a girl named Jill is brought into Narnia who knows nothing about Aslan the lion. But she's very, very thirsty. It's been a long journey, and she's very thirsty. She hears trickling water, and she rushes towards it. And sitting in front of this beautiful stream is a massive lion. There's Jesus sitting in front of eternal life. Now this little beautiful scene. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. It was the hardest thing that she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. There's the feast. There's him feasting with you and providing more than you could possibly consume. But it comes after the trial of your faith. Someday Jesus is going to come in that hard moment when he still asks you to row and you're not quite at your destination and it's not time for him to step in. And he's going to say in that hard moment, will you also go away? May we be in that moment like the worthy disciples of every dispensation who have looked back at him and said, Lord, where would I go? Lead thou, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. And with that, we thank you for your time. 
we will see you next week when we cover Matthew 15 through 17 and Mark 7 through 9. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.